This is Brain Diet, episode 205, NMOSD Q&A. I love so much focusing on the food we feed our body, but I love even more focusing on the stuff we feed our brain. My name is Taylor Ann Macy, and I am a certified life coach. Welcome to Brain Diet, where we feed your brain the best information. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the podcast, an episode that's going to be different kind of episode rooted with all of my same intention, if you will. But I have a very specific goal in mind with this episode. As you know, or if you don't, I'm going to tell you about it. I have a rare autoimmune condition called NMOSD, and that stands for Neuromyelitis Optica Spectrum Disorder. And I've shared a lot about that fact on Instagram. I've talked a lot about it on the podcast. And I've kind of gone through seasons where it's been more at the forefront of what I've talked about, and then it's kind of taken a back seat. But it's always just been a part of my life. And especially since I, I do work with a lot of women with autoimmunity, it it is a very uh, present part of my personal and my professional life. And so because of that, I get messages often from patients. Now, usually it's from people that are newly diagnosed with a condition or it's loved ones of those that have been newly diagnosed with a con- with this condition that reach out to me. And every once in a while, I will get messages from longtime patients, whether it's been years with a diagnosis or even just months. But typically, I'm getting messages from someone that's just gotten the diagnosis of this condition and has so many different questions for me. And because this condition is so rare, when I say I get message often, I mean, it's a, it's a relative statement. But I'm getting messages at least once a month, at least, whether it's on social platforms, emails, uh, I, I just will have people reach out to me and they have found me through Instagram or through the podcast or whatever it might be and just ask me a lot of different questions. And to be honest, it's one of my favorite parts about a hard situation because I get to connect with people and form a little tribe and and I hope add value to their life in some way. And I, in a way, will often act for others what I wish I would have had when I was initially diagnosed. And I actually had a really positive experience. Again, it was a hard situation. It still is. but, But I had a lot of support and a lot of things that were extremely helpful for me. And so I like to take that in addition to what I know, in addition to what I've learned, and extend that toward those that have this diagnosis who have recently received it or or love someone that has just gotten this diagnosis. And the reason that I'm doing this episode today is because many of the questions that I get from people are the same. And so I decided that instead of just a direct message on Instagram, I wanted to dedicate an entire episode to some of these questions. And I actually asked directly for questions on Instagram as well. I kind of accumulated ones from different messages over the last couple of years. Then I also just posted a question box and asked for patients or relatives to give me their questions, what they might have. And so I'm going to be answering the questions and really just giving an insight into some of the details of life with it that I have figured out for myself. And so I want to illustrate a little more of like the the personal aspect of it, like what it's like. And then I also just want to share 
things that I have learned that might be helpful. And so if you are someone that doesn't have this condition, which the majority of my listeners do not because it is such a rare condition, you're welcome to skip this episode. But if you have autoimmunity, I'll be sharing some some tips about that. And also if you just are interested in kind of learning some of the ins and outs about what it looks like, maybe it'd be interesting to you. You can listen. I mean, of course you can listen if you want to, but I'm just saying if you don't want to hear questions and answers about this condition, you certainly don't have to. And that is kind of the caveat I give to this episode, because like I mentioned, it's just going to be a little bit different because I'm going to be speaking to such specific people. But I wanted to have an episode that I could refer people to. And I I continue, I will continue to answer their questions, but I just want to be able to have this episode to say, hey, if you want more information on this, on some of these questions that I get repeatedly, here's a more in-depth answer that I can deliver a little bit better than I could just in an Instagram direct message. And so what I'm going to be talking about today are going to be things, answering questions, and some will be specific to the condition itself. Some will just be relative to autoimmunity in general. Uh, I'm going to talk about, um, you know, traveling with it and considerations I make and day-to-day life and things like that. And then some are just personal experiences that might just be unique to me. Everybody, every body is unique. And whether you have this condition or, or not, or have any condition at all, it's going to be a very unique experience for you. But I hope that through the questions I will answer today that I can still add value um, and not in a way of saying, here's my advice for what to do, but just to give a perspective that might be helpful when you are trying to figure out how to navigate and cope with something that can be quite a surprise and quite an adjustment. Uh, And so I will be adding my value that I believe is universal, I hope, from my personal experiences. Um, What I am going to be answering today, again, is not medical advice. It's just me talking more personally about kind of the ins and outs of little things, and you'll understand what I mean when I get into it. But take what I say with a grain of salt and refer to your providers for all of your questions. In fact, take this episode and ask them about it. Um, If there's something that I say that piques your interest or that you have questions about, um, of course you can DM me on Instagram, but I'm not your doctor. And so if you have questions relating to what I talk about today, take them to your doctor. Um, And that's a really good thing to have questions to ask your doctor. Whatever type of health you have, even if you're going for a yearly wellness check, it's always good to ask questions because it sparks conversation and it sparks other uh, questions and it can lead to you just getting a more comprehensive source of help. And so if you have questions, that's great. Take note of them and make sure to take them to those that are providing you with your care. Now, I'm not going to tell my story of how I was diagnosed and kind of my journey. I'll allude to it a little bit, but if you want to hear more about it, I went a little bit more in depth on the whole journey on episode 76. I think it's called um, Getting Diagnosed with a Life-Threatening Disease, I believe is the title, but I know it's episode 76. So if you scroll back, you can listen to my story there if you want to, but otherwise I'm just going to be answering these questions um, and giving a little bit of a overview of what NMO is, again, from a very, very generic and general perspective because I'm not a doctor. Um, I learned early to not Google this condition. (laughs) And I mean, this is kind of like, a wide known joke, right? To not Google your symptoms because anything will just tell you that you're going to die. But I learned early on to not Google this condition. Um, I would often have my husband do it for me just because with everything that's going on with an initial diagnosis, it just doesn't help to present your brain with more information that 
can lead to a lot of scary thoughts, a lot of scary emotions, and things that maybe just wouldn't be conducive to helping you take care of yourself in the best way. Um, and so I Googled it today. I'm much more um, comfortable and can Google all of these things. Having had this condition now for four years, four and a half years, I am much more comfortable and less jarred because I've done a lot of work to get here. But regardless, the reason I'm telling you this is because I was looking at different definitions of the condition. And there was one that was given by the Oregon Health and Science University. Uh, their definition defines NMOSD as the following. Neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder is a rare inflammatory disease that most often affects the optic nerves and spinal cord. Less often, it affects the brain. It often leads to sudden vision loss, paralysis, or both. Symptoms after a first attack usually improve. So in that definition, it defines it as a rare inflammatory disease. It's also been defined as a chronic disorder, as an autoimmune disorder. There are different uh, verbiages used as it kind of describes what type of disorder it is. But essentially, again, from a very uh, generic definition, it is um, the body's immune system attacking the brain and spinal cord. And um, because of that, because you're attacking the central nervous system, symptoms can run quite a wide range. Now, there are some that are used to help diagnose it, but um, it can be tricky because it's rare and because symptoms can really vary, vary to a wide degree. And so NMO can and look, can and will look um, different for every individual. So keep that in mind if you are a patient or if you know someone with it or if you've never heard of it. It's hard to define clearly. It's not like something that is very obvious or very black and white. The first thing that I am going to share that might seem silly, but it's something that has made life a lot better for me. And it's actually one of the questions that I get the most often is about infusions. And when I say infusions, I mean infusions of uh, drugs that are approved for the preventative treatment of NMOSD. There are a number of different drugs that are approved for NMOSD and um, research is continually being done and the the geography of the condition has has changed and improved dramatic, dramatically even over just the last decade um, with how much attention and research has been put into it. Now, what I want to share is what it looks like for me, what an infusion day looks like for me, and then just kind of my essentials. And then I'm going to get into some questions that I got directly on Instagram when I asked for them. So I am on a drug called Rituxan is the brand name. And then Rituximab is the generic name. They're synonymous. And the Rituxan is a common drug to begin with for NMOSD patients, from what I understand. Uh, it's a common first attempt to get things under control and managed. Um, rituximab is a, when I Googled it, I think the, the definition it gave me was a chemotherapy medication used to treat certain autoimmune diseases and types of cancer. So the drug is something that cancer patients will utilize in their cancer treatment. And then, um, like I said, it's something that is often used as a uh, first line of defense for those with NMOSD. And it might not be the first thing that you try if you have that condition. But um, I know commonly it is one that is used in the beginning. And this is a drug designed to stop your immune system from attacking you and your systems. 
and prevent future attacks. Because if your immune system is compromised enough and limited enough, then it doesn't have the capability to continue to attack. Um, this chemo drug is not a drug for sis, uh, symptom management necessarily. It is uh, a preventative drug and symptom management is usually accomplished through other medications and that's going to be very specific to you and your doctor and your specific symptoms. Now, doses of this specific chemotherapy drug and this treatment drug um, will depend and vary slightly. Um, and like I said, this is the only drug that I have ever been on. I know that other NMOSD patients have been on it, not done well on it, and have had to change. Some have done well on it. Um, so I can only speak to my experience with Rituxin. I am more or less familiar <clears throat> with some of the other drugs, but not from a personal experience. I'm just aware of what they are and how they work differently, perhaps, than Rituxin. Um, and so, like I said, I'm just going to be speaking to my experience and kind of the the particulars about it. Um, but like I said, the doses that it is administered are going to just vary depending on, on you. And from what I understand, I do Rituxin doses more often than is typically prescribed at the beginning of a patient's journey. Now, again, this was just the words from my neurologist that says we are going to do more for you than maybe what we would normally prescribe. And I don't know that there was a very clear, re I mean, there was a clear reason why, but, but like I said, it's just going to be unique to every person. Um, I believe a standard dose that um, patients might begin with would be two starter doses that are 14 days apart. And when I say dose, I mean infusion or, you know, taking the meds. Um, they are done two doses, 14 days apart, and then one dose every six months following that. And like I said, I do more than that, but I think that might be a general expectation to have if you're starting on this drug. Um, that's going to be my guess, just based on what I've learned and my doctor has told me. I think that's a, a typical dosing for someone that is just diagnosed with NMOSD. Um, and like I said, there are other drugs that are different and I've only ever been on this one. I know that there are other drugs approved for NMO that some are oral, some are really short infusions that are done more often, you know, weekly or every other week or monthly. Um, and like I said, I don't have experience with those, but, uh, what I will kind of give you an insight into is to my experience with this one. So I want to tell you what a dose looks like. Like when I am doing an infusion, kind of from A to Z, what it looks like, what I take with me and how I manage them. I do my infusions at my local cancer center and they take anywhere from like six to eight hours for me. They have a drug and they have to infuse it slowly, which is why it takes so long. And so when I was first receiving these chemotherapy infusions, I had reactions uh, when I was first um, infusing it into my system. And what had happened is I, I had a couple in the beginning and I haven't had any reactions since because we've kind of figured out how my body responds and, and been prepared accordingly. But um, what can happen is you can have a reaction because this chemotherapy drug is, is, is taking away a very important part of your immune system. Now, while it's an important part, if it's going rogue and working against you, then it's a very good thing to manage it, to suppress it in order to help uh, prevent future attacks. But because of that, that part of our immune system is not 
going to go easy. It doesn't want to leave because it is technically an important part, even if it doesn't know that it's doing something that's harmful. And so you have to infuse it really slowly. And sometimes the body can react to it to say, this isn't a good thing. I don't want this to be happening. And so for me, um, I believe it was during my first dose, um, my throat had started to close up. And because the nurses that are there are aware that that is a possibility, they should be very close to you, very on top of things. And so when that started happening for me, they were ready, they were prepared for it. I was um, taken off of the chemotherapy drug for a minute and we just um, started to IV infuse um, Benadryl. And that kind of took the swelling down and my reaction then was managed. And so now Benadryl is a regular part of my infusions to prevent these reactions. I also increase... Um, over the course of the day uh, much more slowly. So what they do is they will increase the amount that's infusing into your system over time to slowly allow your body to adjust to having it come into your system. And so I just go really slow um, just so that I can get it into my body without having a reaction. Um, I also was told to take some over-the-counter drugs prior to my first infusion and I found they didn't really make a difference. I think one was like an acid reflux drug and the other was man, I don't even remember what it was, but I remember taking them, you know, I probably took them for five or six infusions and I just didn't feel like they made a difference. And so I no longer take those. Um, but listen to what your doctor says, what your, uh, infusion center says and, and try what they say. Cause it's likely with, with good intent. Um, I think one was like an anti-nausea drug. Well, no, that's not true. I can't remember exactly what it was, but regardless, what I've learned now is what to take and when in order to make it as, smooth as possible and to make recovery as comfortable as possible. And so in the beginning, I tolerated the drug much more poorly than I do now. Um, I think that with time and knowing how to manage it, they're much easier for me to do now. So what that has looked like for me is um, I'm given a steroid, which I think is pretty common um, via IV prior to the infusion. I also take Benadryl and then I spend the six to eight hours receiving the infusion And one of the things that's been really helpful for me is because of the steroid that I'm given um, before, prior to the chemotherapy infusion, it will keep me awake all night long in a way that I've never experienced before, which is a common side effect of, of steroids. And so I've learned to have certain medications on hand to help me sleep that first night after an infusion so that I can get some rest and recover. Um, I also will do infusions on Thursdays and The reason for this is because if I do it on Thursday, then typically by Monday, I am feeling mostly back to myself. Now, the asterisk here is that I have talked to some patients that are on Rituxan and they do not have symptoms after infusions. So like I said, everyone's going to tolerate them a little bit differently. I have a lot of symptoms. Um, I have a lot of And a lot of times, a lot of infusions, it's been different symptoms that I've had after, uh, whether it's throwing up, whether it's body aches, whether it's anxiety or, um, you know, lack of of ability to to fall asleep or, you know, there are a number of different things that have happened. And some people are able to do the infusion and not notice any type of difference the following day. And so keep that in mind. If you are someone that is going to do these infusions, you might have some symptoms like I do and you might have none at all. And you might have symptoms that I've never had before. But have patience as you navigate what your body does during these infusions and trust that you will be able to figure out ways to make it easier and to make it more tolerable. And maybe you won't even need to. Maybe you'll be able to tolerate them just fine. Um, I'm going to list 
the essentials that I bring whenever I have an infusion. And these are my essentials because being, you know, in an uncomfortable hospital chair for six to eight hours, it makes a big difference if you can have things to help your day be a little bit better. And the first one, if I could tell anybody anything to bring to an infusion, and this would be for autoimmune patients, for cancer patients, is a heated blanket. (laughs) I have like a twin size heated blanket. And because they're infusing, um, you know, like those room temperature drugs into your system, it's easy to get really cold. And so to have a heated blanket is something that has been just an imperative part of my infusion every time that I've gone. And so that's something I would recommend investing in. And they actually are relatively inexpensive, especially if you get a small size, they don't have to be that pricey and they just make a big difference in helping you be comfortable. Um, I bring my laptop and a charger so I can watch shows. I bring my phone and a charger so that I have it just in case I need it. I also bring headphones, usually like AirPods, wireless headphones, um, so that I can listen to things without disturbing patients around me. Or my husband, Ben, will come with me to the infusions and you know he'll kind of be working a little bit on his laptop. So it's just nice to have headphones to kind of keep to yourself and be able to hear what you want to hear. And then I will bring my Kindle if I want to read books. And I also bring a lot of snacks. Now, I used to bring more than I do now because I've just, I mean, I still bring some, but I do not DoorDash or Postmates. I don't order food hardly ever. And in fact, I think in the last year, the only time I've ever done it was when I was getting my infusion. And so I just plan on DoorDashing food because it makes it easier and I you know, have another part of the day that's just a little bit more comfortable. And otherwise, I just bring snacks and things to have to get me through the day. The other thing that I recommend bringing would be a big water mug. So like a Stanley mug, I have one of those like reduce mugs. I don't know, there are so many different brands right now. I'm not even sure what to list because they're just countless. But the reason for this is because um, my nurses are genuinely just good people and generally uh, willing to help me out. I have had wonderful experiences with nurses over the years and I've done them at a lot of different infusion centers. Um, but having a big water mug, they can go and get you ice and water. And that way, um, you kind of have a straw and you're not just limited to like your liquid. You've got a little bit more control over that. And then I also wear socks, really cozy, comfy socks. Cause I'll have my shoes off for most of the day. And then clothes that are comfortable that can also give IV access in my arm. I usually just decide which arm I want to do it on beforehand and then just make sure that I'm able to give access to that easily. And those are kind of the things that I really value having and that are really important to me to have every time I have an infusion. Um, And so pay attention for yourself if you are having infusions like this to what you feel like you want, but those would be some of the basics that I would recommend taking along. Okay. So that's kind of infusion talk. Uh, spending time in the hospital, you should have good supportive nurses and that will walk you through everything and just be patient as you figure out how to do them and how uh, how to make it more comfortable for you during uh, before, during, and after. Um, I also am going to mention, I've got a couple questions that I'll answer, but there are two resources that I want to mention. If you are a patient with NMOSD or if you are a loved one of a patient with NMOSD, there are two resources that I would recommend checking out. The first is the Guthy Jackson Foundation. They are a charitable foundation that is dedicated to funding basic and clinical research needed to treat the condition. And the other resource I'd recommend checking out is the Sumaira Foundation. That is a nonprofit organization dedicated to 
generating awareness of the condition. In fact, I had Sumaira on the podcast. She was episode 158, and that was an excellent episode. She tells her story about getting diagnosed with NMO. Um, fascinating and such a lovely, extraordinary person. So I would recommend listening to that, checking out those resources. Those are both great resources um, that will help you a little bit as you are trying to learn more about it, but not scare yourself too much by Googling some things that can lead you down a very unpleasant rabbit hole. (laughs) So I recommend checking out those too. Um, Okay, now I'm going to see how I can answer these next questions that I got on Instagram. The first is, how did you decide on your current preventative treatment drug for NMOSD? And like I said, it's Rituxan. Um, Because I had a relatively quick diagnosis, it was just our first line of treatment per my neurologist's recommendation. And because I've done well on it, I've tolerated it well, and it's done, it's had its intended purpose, we've never changed it. And so I can't say that it was really a conscious decision for me. I just really trusted my neurologist and was lucky enough to have a good response to it. Um, And so if you are deciding the appropriate preventative drug for you, ask your clinical team, your neurologist to go over other drugs and have them explain to you why they are opting for the one that they are choosing. Um, Even if you don't know a lot about those drugs, it can be helpful, again, just to ask questions and say, okay, if you're choosing this, tell me why, tell me, uh, you know, what are the the reasons that you might opt for this over this and what specifically about my condition draws you to this drug? Ask lots of questions. The next question is, what is the thing you find most challenging about the condition and how do you deal with it? Man, and getting this question, this is honestly why I started my business. This is honestly why I talk about this on a podcast when I've got a lot of people listening and I'm I'm taking time out of your day to explain stuff about this to you. It is it is because of of how I feel about it. And the symptoms of this condition are hard, but sometimes the emotional turmoil, whether it's current or worrying about the future, can be even harder sometimes. So what that means is sometimes even when someone is like feeling good, being like, oh, my symptoms are managed, I'm feeling okay, even still, the brain might want to go down a path of like, but what if? What if you wake up tomorrow and you have a relapse? What if you wake up tomorrow and you can't see if you can't walk? Um, And so because of that, it has been such a pillar of what I talk about on the podcast and, and what I teach and what I coach people on to take exquisite physical care of yourself through how you are eating, how you are moving, and how you are managing your stress but also take exquisite mental care of yourself. And that means getting a lot of support for the sentences running around in your mind that can be very painful and very uncomfortable and very worrisome. It means developing strategies and skills for how to think about the condition and about life with it. Um, I will recommend episode 155, It's called Six Things I Wish I Would Have Known When I Was Diagnosed with an Autoimmune Condition. I just wrote down in my notes the the episode number, but I can't remember the exact title, but it's something along the lines of like, six things I wish I would have known when I was first diagnosed. And in that episode, I talk a little bit more in depth about how important mental strategies are because sometimes our body can be doing okay and can be improving and doing well. But our brain can be our worst offender in terms of how we feel emotionally because it is so concerned and worried about the future. And so for me, I think that symptoms are challenging. The chemo can be challenging for me. It might not be for you. 
but dealing with it is such a balance of the physical self-care as well as the mental self-care. And that is what I, I talk a lot about on the podcast and I hope um, is clear that I value both of those things. Next question is, what are your suggestions for how to live a healthy lifestyle with it in terms of nutrition and stressors? The first thing that I will say to this question is you can't cure autoimmunity with nutrition and lifestyle. It's not something that some diet is going to fix for you. But I do think you can influence how you live with autoimmunity to a degree with how you are nourishing yourself and how you are managing stress, how you are living. I think you can influence the quality of your life with autoimmunity with the choices that you make with diet and exercise and stress management. And I think also when you are using nutrition and lifestyle skills properly, you can influence how your body responds to relapses, how it recovers from them, how it heals, how it uh, responds to you know viruses and, and things outside of autoimmunity. Um, And so I'm not going to tell you that there is a certain way to like heal yourself, but I do have such a passion for helping people understand that, that nourishing themselves and taking care of themselves can influence how they, they function and and that can increase a overall quality of life. Um, In terms of nutrition, I don't recommend elimination diets unless specifically medically necessary. And Typically with NMO, um, I don't know of a lot of neurologists that are making specific recommendations about eliminating certain things. Again, if unless there are extenuating circumstances or unless you have like a very clinical uh, clear reason for needing to eliminate entire food groups from your diet. Um, but if that isn't the case, I, I don't recommend them myself. And my neurologist has said the same, that it is not um, going to have an influence on NMO, just eliminating certain things from your diet. Uh, but it is a personal choice. And Unfortunately, I think that elimination diets can actually do more harm than good, um, especially if they're done when they aren't necessary, just because they can lead to nutrient deficiencies. They can also influence a person's relationship with food. It can lead to food obsession. And those things are not going to be helpful in terms of your overall wellness. And so that's just kind of a crash course on how I feel about elimination diets and nutrition. Um, In terms of what I think it's important to live a healthy lifestyle with it. I listed three things here that I think are important to consider. The first is sleep. Getting enough sleep is imperative for a body to to heal, to function, to maintain a robust immune system for the fun- the part of your immune system that is still functioning well, um, and to heal from injury. And that means that if we have a condition like NMO where injury is more or less self-inflicted, if you will, from our own immune system, we need to give our body the resources and the time and the space to heal. And sleep is going to be a primary source for that. And so what that might look like is implementing really good sleep hygiene. And so that's going to mean having the same bedtime and wake time every day of the week. And the reason for that is to get your body used to being in a certain rhythm so that it knows when to release certain hormones and when to get tired and when to be awake. 
and can make your sleep overall uh, just more effective in terms of healing and um, recovering from the stress of the day when you can have a consistent bedtime and wake time, usually within about half an hour. That's also going to mean things like limiting screens before bed. Screens emit blue light, and that can be an inhibitor for melatonin. Now, blue light in itself isn't bad, but because it can inhibit melatonin, it can prevent our ability to get sleepy and to fall asleep and stay asleep. And so limiting screens before bed is good for that reason, in addition to the fact that we are limiting the stimulation of our brain. We're allowing our mental state to kind of downregulate if we limit screens before bed. Otherwise, we can present ourselves with a lot of information to give our brain lots of things to think about, which isn't helpful usually or conducive to falling asleep peacefully and staying asleep. Um, The other thing is having light in the morning. Um, Experiencing light in the morning is kind of having the opposite effect of the limiting light before bed. It just helps our body wake up and release the appropriate hormones to um, be awake and then to function throughout the day without having extreme crashes. So that's kind of the overview of sleep and what I think about it and why it matters for those with autoimmunity and how to accomplish it. The next thing is stress management. Um, Manage stress from your life. I think that it is something that a lot of people struggle to do, um, not just people with autoimmunity, um, but because stress can be such a major factor in how an autoimmune condition looks, it's so important to really prioritize paying attention to it in whatever way that means for you. It's okay to slow down if you need to. I have a lot of episodes talking at length about this on the podcast that if you need to slow down and just zoom in on your life and focus on little things and let go of a lot of the big things, that's okay. It's just a season of life where you're going to be a little bit more zoomed in and that's okay. Um, I also will mention that exercise, as we're talking about stress management, exercise is stress. It's a form of stress that you are putting the body under. But when you put your body under stress and it is still within its ability to recover, then your body responds and gets stronger because of it. And so when it comes to exercise and those with autoimmunity, I recommend doing it. I recommend exercising to reap the benefits of it in order to strengthen yourself in such a wide variety of ways, but not doing it to a point where it's beyond your ability to recover from it. If you are exercising to the point where you're not able to recover, where you're having to take multiple days off afterward because you're so exhausted or sore, then that's not going to work in your favor. And so, of course, I'm going to uh, recommend prioritizing exercise, uh, strength training in particular, but only to the point that you are able to recover from it. And sometimes that might look pretty small, depending on what season you are in of your diagnosis and of your health. And that's okay. Exercising is still going to help you in whatever way you do it, if you are pushing yourself a little bit and still within your window window to recover. And then the last thing, speaking to nutrition, again, I spoke to the uh, my opinion on elimination diets. I recommend prioritizing protein and fruits and vegetables. I have a 21-day challenge. It's called Eat Better, Feel Better. Um, and it's just a 21-day challenge about getting enough protein, getting enough fiber, fruits and vegetables, um, basic nutritional principles just to support immune function, immune function and, um, helping, helping you feel well and function in other areas, not just with autoimmunity. Um, there are also ways to use specific whole foods to support your systems. I'm sorry, your symptoms and your doctor should be able to help guide you with this. Um, again, that's not going to be my area of expertise, uh, but there are certain things that you can do based on certain symptoms using food that can help support you and your management of symptoms. Um, those are kind of the basic principles I recommend for living with autoimmunity. Um, I also 
have suggestions in regard to things that aren't necessarily like food or exercise related, something that I recommend is having a specific path for what to do if you have new symptoms or need help. This is one thing that you want to get very clear with your doctor or your clinical team about to say, if I have a symptom, if I have this experience, if this is happening, tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. So for me, I have an email for somebody to email. I have a phone number to call. I have a uh, patient messaging system that I can utilize. I have an after hours resource. And I also have helped uh, kind of delineate the difference between what can wait and what is urgent enough. And so it's it's important to know a little bit about that enough to know, okay, this is bad enough. I just need to go to the emergency room um, or urgent care versus utilizing one of the other contacting systems. And so that's an important conversation to have with your doctor. What do I do if I have new symptoms? Tell me exactly what I need to do, how I can get a hold of you or how I can get access to what I need in order to get support. Um, work with your doctor to get a very clear plan for what to do very like obvious to both of you. That's something I will recommend for how to live with this condition and how to live comfortably with it. Um, Next question. Are there any activities or exercises you stay away from as a result of the spinal impact? No, I don't. Um, I don't want to speak out of turn, but my neurologist has indicated that the spine isn't more fragile necessarily. Um, And again, this is just what my neurologist told me. So so ask yours about it because it's going to be different for everybody. But um, Yes, it can have lesions and the immune system can have attacked it. But from what I understand, it's not necessarily going to mean that the spine is more fragile or more at risk of, of, of problems. Um, and again, I, I hesitate to even say more. Um, it's just going to be a question to ask your doctor. But for me personally, I don't avoid uh, activities or exercises that might have an impact on spinal impact, have an impact on my spine, excuse me. With that though, I prioritize form and strengthening my core muscles. And so I think currently with my physical state, my spine would be as much at risk of injury as anyone else would be. Um, In fact, strength training can actually prevent spinal injury. And so not only do I not avoid it, I I purposely train to strengthen the muscles around my spine. And um, I have had a lot of really good coaches to help me prioritize form so that I can avoid injuring myself. So if you are my friend asking me this question, that would be the answer I would give you is to ask your doctor first and then to say, train strategically with someone who can help you have the right form so that you can, you know, strengthen the muscles of your core and around your spine just to give yourself support there. Um, But not necessarily because you're more fragile. You're not. You just have something going on in your body and that's okay. We've got answers for it. Um, Next question. I was just diagnosed. How common are relapses? And man, I... I get this question a lot and I wish I had a concrete answer for you. Um, Relapses are typically um, what people experience when they have a new flare of symptoms after a period of inactivity of symptoms or minimal activity of symptoms. Um, And it's different for everybody. I, I wish, it's one of those things I wish I could give you a clear path forward for what to expect. But like I said, sometimes the hardest thing is the not knowing the not knowing about the future, the not knowing what to expect. And so I recommend choosing deliberate thoughts that you really believe. So you need to try them on and see how they feel for you that can help assuage your worry and your concern. And I will offer you two of mine that I feel like have helped me get through those moments of like, am I going to get another one? How common are these? Am I just going to wake up one morning and have, you know, half of my body not working? 
And the first thought is my body will know what to do. My body's really smart. And so if that happens, my body's going to be smart and I'm going to have all of the resources I need because I have a very clear plan for what to do if I have new symptoms um, For in that case. Uh, and so my body's really smart and it's going to be okay. The next thought that I will use all the time is I'm going to wait for more information and I'm going to cross a bridge when it comes. So sometimes I'll like think I'm having a new symptom and instead of freaking out and going to the worst case scenario, I pause and I'll just say, I'm just going to wait for more information. It's not bad enough to make me take any action yet, although my brain wants to run with it. But what I'm going to do is just wait for more information. And if it comes to a point where I have to make a decision, I will cross that bridge. But it's just a a matter of um, mental management. And I, I say that not in a way to diminish how hard it is because it can be so difficult, but this is where it's so important to have mental support to help you have these strategies in place for when that worry and concern might come up for you. So how common are relapses? I I just don't know. It's going to be different for everybody. Um, The last question is, what travel considerations do you have as a patient with this condition? And again, I'm going to give you kind of the nitty gritty what I do whenever I travel um, that have helped me kind of navigate things successfully. I have a number of oral medications that I take for a number of different symptoms, I always pack extra. I usually will do about two days worth extra on top of what I'm already taking. The other thing that I will do is wherever we're going, I will identify the nearest emergency room and the nearest pharmacy. I remember once I was in, I live in Utah and I was in California and I'd had a, a symptom start to come up for me. Now, again, it wasn't something that was uh, severely alarming, but it was enough to where I was like, oh, you know, this, I, this needs to be addressed. And so I reached out to my neurophthalmologist at the time and because I knew where the nearest pharmacy was and the nearest emergency room, I was able to get the support that I needed. Um, and it wasn't urgent enough that that warranted us going home, but because I was aware enough, it was able to um, be managed well enough that I could still stay on my vacation and then get home and then get more into the details of what needed to be done. Um, so if it is bad enough, you would want to go to the emergency room, but if it's minimal but needs intervention, then you can just fill temporary medications at a pharmacy. Um, I remember once I was in Florida and I needed antibiotics. I knew I was getting an infection. And so because I knew where the nearest pharmacy was, I just messaged my doctor because I know exactly how to contact everybody. And I said, hey, I need this. Can we get this? And um, was able to get what I needed. Uh, so those are kind of things I recommend to do if you're traveling. Um Use that clear path that you have with your doctor uh, to know who to contact and what to do. Another thing to keep in mind, again, just in terms of like the practical side of things is insurances will have uh, medical care that is out of network and in network. And I like to be aware no matter what I'm looking at, if it's an emergency room or, or otherwise a pharmacy, I just like to be aware of whether it's in network or out of network, um, just because that can affect the costs. And because the chemotherapy drug is so expensive, um, oftentimes it can just be helpful to know whether it's in a, in network or out of network, just to kind of help you make um, informed decisions as you're spending money so that it's going toward maybe a deductible or an out-of-pocket max. Um And so that's something just to consider to look up. If you have insurance, um, most of them have apps that you can look at. You can look at what um, places are in network and out of network and can thus make decisions accordingly. Um, Man, this has been a really interesting episode for me. Like I said, it's very 
uh, different to speak this practically and in a way that I don't normally uh, share on this podcast. And not that I am uncomfortable sharing personal things, but it, it just is something that's a little bit different. And it is because I I just have so much love for the NMOSD community. And I, I hope that there's been something here that, that has been helpful. If you have follow-up questions, send me a DM on Instagram. If there are enough, I will continue to do these episodes um, in hopes that I can provide some value in addition to the clinical care that you're getting um, that can help you navigate this. Because a lot of the success in navigation of it is in having a community and having support, having resources. So I am sending you all of the love, whoever you are. Um, and I am grateful to be part of your tribe and am rooting for you in all of the things. Be patient with yourself as you navigate this and trust that your body is smart and that you are going to be able to figure things out. And there are hopeful, beautiful days in your future. I promise you that. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Are you ready to lose weight, but you don't know where to start? I have something for free that can help. Here at Brain Diet, I offer a free set your custom macros call. On this call, I'll want to know what your goals are and set you on the nutritional path to achieving them. This is a private call with me where I get all the information about you and your body so I can deliver a custom calorie and macronutrient count that when implemented will lead to weight loss in a kind and nourishing way. And if you're ready to hire a coach to walk you through every step of your weight loss journey, I'll tell you everything you need to know about that too. So if it's your time to start losing weight in a sustainable, healthy, and nourishing way, sign up for this free set your custom macro call at the link in the show notes. I'll see you soon. Thank you.